to the south of the United States' 2,000-mile-long border with Mexico, a terrible war has been raging for the past 13 years. So far, the conflict has claimed 230,000 lives, with countless others maimed, bereaved and impoverished. Tens of thousands of children have lost one or both their parents, and several hundred thousand people have been forced to flee their homes, creating an ever-growing army of refugees. Mexico's drug war, an ultra-violent, multi-sided conflict over who controls the country's $30 billion per year illicit drug trade with the USA, is currently costing more than 2,000 lives per month. But how did it all begin? Mexico's drug smuggling tradition had its genesis 10,000 miles away on the other side of the Pacific, for it was from China that Mexico's opium industry was first imported in the 1870s. China had in turn first been introduced to opium on a large scale by British merchants who shipped the drug in from India. Seeing the harm opium was doing to the population, the 19th century Chinese imperial government tried to ban it, but the British defeated China in two so-called opium wars and forced it to accept the trade and its serious social consequences. As a result, the number of opium smokers in China rose 50-fold between 1842 and 1881. It was during this drug boom that in the 1870s, Chinese migrants started to arrive in Mexico, many of them recruited as cheap labour to build the country's first railways. The migrants, many of whom were opium users, brought opium seeds with them and started production when they reached Mexico. Soon, opium dens were flourishing both in Mexico and north of the border. However, in 1909, the US made opium importation and consumption illegal, and as a result, Mexico's trans-border drug smuggling industry was born. But it was another US ban, alcohol prohibition, in the 1920s that was tra to transform Mexican opium smuggling. Between 1909 and 1933, opium smuggling was mainly controlled by Chinese Mexicans. But during the U.S. alcohol prohibition period, um, 1920 to 1933, indigenous Hispanic Mexicans launched and controlled a substantial alcohol production and cross-border smuggling operation. When prohibition ended, their lucrative smuggling operation became redundant but they quickly identified a replacement smuggling trade, the Chinese-controlled opium run. The Chinese were a wealthy and unpopular ethnic minority within Mexico, 
and the ex-alcohol smugglers used popular anti-Chinese sentiment to help incite mass violence against them. These attacks drove them out of the trade and allowed the indigenous Hispanic smugglers to take over the former Chinese-Mexican-run opium operations. The Mexican opium business continued to generate modest revenues, especially during the Second World War, when the drug was required in large quantities as a painkiller by the US military. But it wasn't until the late 1960s and 1970s that Mexican drug smuggling became truly massive. Driven by the hippie revolution in the USA, marijuana and then heroin smuggling became big business. It was that social transformation of much of America's youth, a consequence of the baby boom, unprecedented prosperity and rapid higher education expansion, that first created the momentum towards Mexico's current horrific war. A greater contrast between cause, the hippie revolution and its love, peace and flower power ideology, and consequence, the massacres and mass murders of the present drug war, is hard to imagine. In other ways too, developments north of the border have conditioned the nature and history of Mexico's drug industry. Firstly, Domestic political and funding considerations made it impossible for the US government to substantially reduce the demand side of the drugs equation. Instead, the US authorities chose to concentrate their efforts on preventing smuggling or intervening abroad to reduce production. In 1971, US President Richard Nixon pressurized the Turkish government into, into suppressing Turkish opium production, but this simply helped boost Mexican opium production. In 1976, US planes sprayed poison on hundreds of square miles of marijuana fields. As a result, U.S. drug dealers simply started importing marijuana from Colombia, thus helping to create massive Colombian drug cartels. Then in 1982, President Ronald Reagan uh, used the U.S. military to prevent Colombian drug smuggling into Florida. But the tactic backfired because the Colombians simply rerouted their drugs by then mainly cocaine, through Mexico, and as the US authorities were soon discovering, the 2,000-mile-long Mexican border was much more difficult to police than the coast of Florida. The events of 1971, 1976 and 1982 demonstrated the displacement expansion problems inherent in trying to tackle the drug business at the supply end. A second US policy also helped expand the Mexican drug industry, namely the maintenance of ultra-liberal gun laws. The US Constitution 
amendments added to counter big government as part of the 1791 U.S. Bill of Rights gives American citizens the right to carry guns. In this has in turn helped facilitate the smuggling of tens of thousands of weapons to drug gangs in Mexico. Arms-wise, the conflict has been partially fueled, courtesy of guns from America. A third US-originating policy that contributed to the emergence of Mexico's ultra-violent current conflict was a particular aspect of America's pursuit of the Cold War in Mexico and Central America. In order to combat leftists in Latin America, the CIA created and trained local special military forces that fought a series of brutal so-called dirty wars against left-wing opponents in a variety of Central and South American countries. However, after the Cold War was over, elements and former elements of at least two of the special forces, one from Mexico, another from Guatemala, defected to the Mexican drug, drug cartels. It is this militarization of the drug conflict that has, over the past 13 years, helped turn it into a real and large-scale war. U.S. political action also contributed to the outbreak of the Mexican conflict, a combination of internal Mexican political factors and post-Cold War um, U.S. support for democratic reform led to the decline of Mexico's traditional ruling party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. The PRI had been in power for 70 years, and for most of that time, Mexico had functioned as a virtual one-party state. Government was carried out at national and state level through a combination of patronage and sometimes corruption in which criminality was often accommodated in ways that avoided violent rivalry and conflict. With the emergence of more of a more multi-party system, that relatively stable situation ended as new politicians sought to reduce the drug cartel's power. Not only did increased government military intervention raise the stakes, it also upset the delicate balance of power between competing cartels. The result was a rapid increase in inter-cartel and inter-gang violence. But the size of US drug demand, the nature of US anti-drug strategy over the decades, and the greater political plurality in Mexico itself do not fully explain the nature and extreme violence of the current war. To grasp that, one has to examine some very specific aspects of Mexico's past. Mexico has a violent history. It was conquered by the Spanish in the 16th century and popular uprisings were ruthlessly suppressed in the 17th and 18th centuries. Since Mexico became independent in the early 19th century, the country as a whole, or parts of it, have been convulsed by more than 30 wars, military coups and massacres. 
between 1910 and 1929, well over a million Mexicans were killed in two major civil conflicts, the Mexican Revolution and the subsequent counter-revolutionary Cristero War. In the 1960s and 1970s, hundreds were massacred or simply disappeared in the Mexican government's campaign against the left. In 1994, an armed Indian revolt broke out in the south of the country. Alongside this history of warfare has been a tradition of heroic banditry. Bandits are a staple of Mexican folklore and as a direct result, today's bandits, the leaders of the drug gangs, are celebrated in vast numbers of popular ballads uh, and films. To some, especially the poor and disadvantaged, they are often seen as anti-authority heroes. In a country where poverty is endemic and where most land is controlled by a tiny minority, anti-authority challenges can attract substantial street-level respect. What's more, the poor are overwhelmingly of mixed race, partly Indian origin, who often do not fully identify with the ruling classes who themselves are perceived as being of more Spanish origin. Another cultural phenomenon uh, contributing to the violent nature of the current war in Mexico uh, is uh, Mexico's macho tradition, which without doubt reduces male willingness to compromise and encourages aggression. Indeed, data from a social research company, uh, Global TGI, has demonstrated that Mexican men are among the most macho-oriented in Latin America. The ideas of such machismo were introduced into Mexico by the Spanish conquistadors and originally in the extreme originated in the extreme patriarchal nature of much of medieval Spanish society. However, complementing the bandit hero and the macho traditions is a unique Mexican flirtation with concepts of death. This is seen in the way that two popular saints help sustain often deeply religious drug gang members. The first was originally a northwest Mexican Robin Hood style bandit called Jesus Malverde, literally bad green. The color of marijuana and US dollar bills. This native Mexican Jesus attacked the rich and helped the poor, and is said to have been executed by firing squad by the authorities in 1909. The second popular saint, beloved of many foot soldiers of the current war, is Santa Muerte, Saint Death, a syncretic character part Christian and part ancient Mexican in origin, descended from the Aztec goddess of death. Death may wear a religious mask, but on Mexico's streets the conflict is very real indeed. 
last year 35,000 died in the war and parts of Mexico are partially controlled by major drug cartels. Dealing with the horror of the drug industry at the supply end is an almost impossible task, but tackling the issue at the demand end is also a monumental challenge, with 80,000 people a year currently dying from drugs and drug-related causes in North America and Europe alone. Alas, the world's ever more lethal drug tsunami shows no sign of slowing down.